Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Arunachala Ramanaya Namaskaram. Um, today I'm going to be talking about verse 11 of, um, of Uludunapadu. Verses 10, 11, 12, and 13 are one series. That is, in verse 9, Bhagavan referred to dyads and triads. What he meant by dyads is pairs of opposites. What he meant by triads is the three factors of any objective knowledge, the knowledge of anything other than ourselves. That is, there's a knower, a thing known, and a means of knowing it. And as Bhagavan points out in verse 9, the dyads and triads exist depending on one thing. The one thing on which they depend is ego. Why? Because they exist only in the view of ego. Ego is the knower. There cannot be anything known without a means of knowing it. And there cannot be either anything uh, known or any means of knowing it without a knower. So the knower is fundamental. And the pairs of opposites are all things that are known. Existence, non-existence, um, awareness, non-awareness, um, uh, knowledge, ignorance, happiness, unhappiness, pleasure, pain, um, uh, <coughs> um, birth, death, uh, and so on. All these are pairs of opposites. One of the one of the fundamental pairs of opposites is uh, because all pairs of opposites are things known. The most fundamental of all the pairs of opposites is knowledge and ignorance, or one of the most fundamental. Um, so in, from verses 10, 11, 12, Bhagavan is talking about this pair of opposites called uh, the, the, uh, knowledge and ignorance. But in 10, 11, and 12, the two words that Bhagavan uses for knowledge and ignorance are respectively Aribu and Ariyame. In verse 13, the pair of uh, words he uses in the same sense is Jnana and Agnana. Um, the word Aribu and the word Jnana, in some contexts, they mean knowledge. But Knowledge is not actually in many in many sense in which they're used. Knowledge is not an accurate um, an an accurate term for them because in English when we talk about knowledge, we are talking about knowledge is something that we know. What we know is we call knowledge. Um, but uh, aribu means not only what is known; it also means awareness. In other words, what is knowing? So um, the word aribu has a much deeper meaning. Than, um, I mean, in many contexts, aribu um, uh, or jnana means similar to the English word knowledge. But it also includes contexts in which we would use words like uh, consciousness or awareness. So the, the real aribu is the pure awareness. In other words, the awareness of our own being, I am. So just to remind what we talked about last time, verse 10, what Bhagavan says in verse 10, in the first sentence he says, um, uh, literally, victu means leaving. But in this context, it, it's used in the sense of without. So without ignorance, uh, knowledge does not exist. 
without knowledge, ignorance does not exist. So here he's talking about a pair of opposites. And like with any pair of opposites, each, each depends on the other, that each has a meaning in terms of the other. So the knowledge and ignorance he's talking about here is knowledge and ignorance about things other than ourselves. So um, anything other than ourselves that we know, now we know it, but previously we didn't know it. And in future, we're not going to know it because um, sooner or later, everything that we now know will be forgotten. So um, our knowledge of anything is, um, is surrounded by ignorance, so to speak. That is, prior to it, there was ignorance, and after it, there will be ignorance. So without that ignorance, the knowledge of other things doesn't exist. Likewise, without knowledge, the ignorance doesn't exist. Why is this? Because whatever we, nothing actually exists independent of our knowledge of it, independent of our awareness of it. So, um, for example, when we were at school, we learned so many things. We learned about history and geography and all these things. When we came to know these things, we came to know, oh, previously I didn't know these things. Our prior ignorance of these things came into existence along with our knowledge of them. Because before we knew them, they didn't exist at all. It's only in our awareness that all these things seem to exist. So Bhagavan says, without ignorance, knowledge does not exist. Without knowledge, ignorance does not exist. And as I say, this is referring to knowledge and ignorance about things other than ourselves. It's not referring to knowledge about or ignorance about ourselves because we always know ourselves. What is called ignorance, agnana, in the sense of not knowing ourselves, avidya, is is not actually an absence of knowledge. It is a wrong knowledge. That is, the, the true knowledge of ourself is I am. But when we rise as ego, instead of being aware of ourselves as just I am, we're aware of ourselves as I am this person, I am this body, I am Michael or whoever. This is a this is a wrong knowledge of ourself. We're aware of ourselves as something other than what we actually are. So this wrong, this, this is what is called ignorance, but it's not really ignorant, it's just a wrong knowledge. Um, and that wrong knowledge, as Bhagavan points out in verse uh, 13, that wrong knowledge could not exist without the real knowledge. Without knowing I am, we couldn't be aware I am, I am this body, I am this person, I am such and such a person. We couldn't know that. So, but, but, but knowledge is fundamental. The ignorance is just a superimposition. So as Bhagavan used to say, jnana is not a new knowledge to be obtained. But problem is, we now, we, we always know ourselves, but instead of knowing ourselves as we actually are, we know ourselves as something else. If we remove the wrong knowledge, the, the true knowledge will alone remain shining. So as I say, when what Bhagavan talks about in verse in the first two sentences of verse 10 is not knowledge and ignorance of ourselves. He's talking about knowledge and ignorance of other things. Um, because knowledge of ourselves doesn't depend on ignorance of ourselves, obviously not. Um, so he, he cannot be talking about uh, knowledge and ignorance of ourselves in these first two uh, sentences.
Then he goes on to say, only the knowledge that knows oneself, who is the first, as to whom are that knowledge and ignorance, is knowledge. Bhagavan here packs in a lot, of, uh, a lot, so we have to understand what he means. When he says, only the knowledge that knows oneself, here he's talking about knowledge as a knower. So here he's talking about knowledge in the sense of awareness. So only the awareness that knows oneself. Um, and, uh, he, and then he says, who is the first? Uh, as to whom are that knowledge and ignorance? So what he means, what he means here by oneself, who is the first, is ego, the first to arise. And it is only to ego, but to, to whom are that knowledge and ignorance? They're only to ego. So when he said the knowledge that knows oneself, what he actually means is the knowledge that knows the reality of oneself. That is what we actually are. Oneself who is the first, but one to whom there is knowledge and ignorance is ego. So what he implies by saying, um, uh, uh, is what he implies by tanne is the reality of oneself. What, what, is the, what is the first? The first to arise is ego. And it is to ego that knowledge and ignorance uh, appear. So uh, we have to understand what he means when he said the knowledge, the tanne arium aribe, the knowledge that knows oneself, means the knowledge that knows what we actually are, the reality of ourself, who are now what seem to know other things. So what knows other things, what, is, what has knowledge and ignorance of other things is ego. What we want to know is the reality of ego, which is what we actually are. So it's, it's put in a very, very terse and compact way. So we need to think carefully about what exactly Bhagavan means here. He's not implying that our real nature uh, knows... Um, knows knowledge, experiences knowledge and ignorance. It is ego that experiences knowledge and ignorance, but reality of, e of ego is what we actually are. So he ends that verse by saying, that means only the awareness that knows oneself is awareness. And what he means by oneself there is the reality of ourself, who are what appear first, the first thing to arise, namely ego, to whom are both knowledge and ignorance. So that's what he said in verse 10. So I say that now just to uh, get the continuity, because there's a continuity of ideas here. So there he was talking about knowledge and ignorance of other things. Here he begins to, uh, but he, I mean, that's what he was talking about initially. And then he said, but only the knowledge that knows oneself is the real knowledge. In other words, the awareness that knows oneself is the real awareness. So he, he reiterates this uh, in a more emphatic way in, the, in verse 11. What he says in verse 11, he begins by saying, Arivu arum, Arivu urum. Tanne, Ariadu, Ayale, Arivadu, Ariame, Andri, Aribo. And it's actually two sentences, but uh, closely connected sentences. Um, that is uh, what this, the basic meaning of this is not knowing oneself who knows, knowing other things is ignorance. 
Besides, is it knowledge? Um, the, the rhetorical question, when he says, besides, is it knowledge? It, as I say, it's a rhetorical question. The implication is, it's not knowledge. So what he, the basic meaning of what he's saying here is knowing ILA. ILA means what is other, anything other than ourselves. Knowing things other than ourselves is, uh, is ignorance, is not knowledge. So uh, the, the real knowledge, the real awareness is not being aware of other things, it is being aware of ourself alone. That's why he begins by saying, uh, that it, remember in the previous sentence, he says only, sorry, in the previous verse, he ended by saying, uh, only the awareness that knows oneself is the real awareness. So. Then he, so he gives the other side of it. Knowing other things is not is not real awareness or not real knowledge. It is only ignorance. And but, but he begins this by saying, uh, not knowing oneself. That is, why do we know other things? We know other things only because we do not know ourselves. Not knowing ourselves means not knowing ourselves as we actually are. Only when we rise as ego and wrongly know ourselves as I am this body, are we aware of other things? As Bhagavan pointed out in um, verse, uh, verse 4 of Uludhunapadu, of, of he said, Uruvum tanayin uluhu paramatran. If oneself is uh, a form, the world and God will be likewise. What does he mean by saying if oneself is a form? What we actually are is formless. But when we rise as ego, we we uh, grasp the form of a body as ourself, as I. So we we conflate ourselves with a form. So as ego, we always experience ourselves as I am a form, I am this body. And only when we are aware of ourselves as I am this body are we consequently aware of other forms. So other forms uh, appear to exist only when we wrongly know ourselves as I am this body. So when he says here, Arivu Urum Tanne, oneself who, um, who, who acquires knowledge, or oneself who has knowledge, um, in other words, oneself who knows, it's just a way of expressing it in, in poetry, but oneself who knows, um, he means he's referring to uh, Again, he's referring here, not knowing oneself who knows. What knows is ego. Not knowing oneself means not knowing the reality of oneself, this ego who knows other things. And in the Kalivemba version, he added one word before this. He added the word ariba. Ariba means uh, those that are known. Things, that, what is known, but in plural. So those that are known. So. Uh, he's referring here to things other than ourselves. So, what knows things other than ourselves is ego. Not knowing the reality of ego, but instead knowing other things is not uh, uh, is not is, is ignorance. It is not it is not knowledge. It is not real awareness. So, being aware of anything other than ourselves is not real awareness. It's only ignorance. Um, we shouldn't think that we we shouldn't misinterpret this to mean it's okay to know other things so long as we know ourselves. That 
that meaning we could read into this, but that is not what Bhagavan means, because as he made clear in so many places, for example, in that verse 4, we know other things only because we do not know ourselves. If we know ourselves, then we know nothing else, because there is nothing else. We alone know what actually exists. Um, if, if, if you know the rope, you don't know the snake. If you know the snake only because of not knowing the, the rope, in other words, not knowing what the rope actually is, when you see the rope but don't recognize what it actually is, then only you can see it as a snake. When you see what it actually is, you can no longer uh, see it as a snake. This is the analogy that Bhagavan uses in a similar context in um, the third paragraph of Nana. There he says that without the the jagat drishti, the perception of the world ceasing, the swarupa darshana, the, the seeing of oneself or the knowledge of oneself cannot arise. And he illustrates that with the, the analogy of the snake and the rope. So long as you see the rope as a snake, you cannot see it as a rope. When you see it as a rope, you cannot see it as a snake. You can't see it as two things at the same time. Either you see it as it actually is, or you see it as something other than what it actually is. What it actually is is just a rope. If you see it as a snake, you're not seeing it as it actually is. Uh, likewise, what actually exists is only ourself. As Bhagavan says in... Um, in um, in the seventh paragraph of Nana, Yatatamai Uladu Apmasarupamondre. What actually exists is only the real nature of oneself, Apmasarupa. And as he says in the next verse of Balutanaptu, verse 13, he begins by saying, um, uh, tane me, oneself who is awareness, meaning pure awareness, jnana, uh, alone is real. What he means by real is alone actually exists. When Bhagavan talks about what is real, he means what actually exists. When he talks about unreal, he means what does not actually exist, even if it seems to exist. So um, here he's saying very, very categorically in this sentence, but knowing things other than ourselves is ignorance, it is not knowledge. The only real knowledge is to know ourselves. Uh, so this is a very, very important statement that he's making here. We should understand, so long as we are aware of anything other than ourselves, that is not real awareness, that is only ignorance. Um, then he goes on in the next sentence to say, Aribu ayaku adara tannei ariya Aribu Ariyame Arum. This is sort of rounding off what he said in the previous verse. Um, what, what, what this means is, Aribu means, uh, not in this context, means knowledge in the sense of knowledge of other things. Ayaku means the other. In this context, it means ignorance. Um, so uh, when one knows oneself, here, here one's, oneself again means the reality of oneself, which is the adara, the bit, the support. But what is the support for aribu uh, ayaku adara means the support for knowledge and the other. In other words, the support for knowledge and ignorance. What is the support for knowledge and ignorance? It is only ego. As he pointed, as he implied in verse nine, 
ego is the base of all dyads and triads. So this, this dyad of knowledge and ignorance, the, the, the adara, the basis of it is ego. The reality of ego is what we actually are. So uh, when one knows oneself, that means when we know the reality of ourself, Arivu, ari, ariame, arum. Knowledge and ignorance will cease. So that means the knowledge and ignorance of all other things will cease when we know ourselves. When we when we know other things, we are not knowing ourselves. When we know ourselves, the knowledge and ignorance of other things will cease. That is why he goes and he in the Kalivamba version he emphasizes it more. Whereas in the um, the Bavemba he ends with Arum. Arum means will cease. Uh, in in the Kalivamba version he says Arumei, that A is an intensifier, will definitely cease. There's no doubt about it. There cannot be knowledge and ignorance. There cannot be either knowledge or ignorance of other things when we know ourselves. Um, it's only when we do not know ourselves as we actually are that we can know other things. Um, and then in the next verse, I'll just give a, a brief preview of the next verse. He begins by saying, um, uh, Arivu Ariyameyum Atradu Arivu Amey. That means what is devoid of knowledge and ignorance, meaning knowledge and ignorance of other things, is actually knowledge or is actually awareness. So the real awareness is the awareness that is completely devoid of knowledge and ignorance of other things. In the Kalivamba version, he says, Arave. Arave means completely. So only that awareness that is completely devoid of knowledge and ignorance of other things is the real, is the real uh, knowledge. I, I will continue about verse 12 because we'll deal with that next time. But um, so uh, the, 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 the main idea in this verse is not knowing oneself who knows, knowing other things is ignorance. Besides, is it knowledge? In other words, it is not knowledge. Uh, it is not real. It is not aware. It's not real awareness. Being aware of other things is not the real awareness. Being aware of ourself alone is the real awareness. When one knows oneself, and in other words, when one knows the reality of oneself, uh, who is the support for knowledge and, and the other, that is, what we the reality of ourself is the support for ego, and ego is the support for knowledge and, and ignorance. So when we know ourselves, the support for knowledge and ignorance, knowledge and ignorance will cease. Why will knowledge and ignorance cease? Because ego will cease. Knowledge and ignorance are only for ego. When we know the reality of ourselves, ego will thereby cease, and hence knowledge and ignorance will cease. This is one of the repeated themes throughout all the Dunapta, but when we know ourselves, Everything else, ego will cease, and consequently, everything else will cease. Because as he says in verse, um, in uh, well, in verse 26, he says particularly clearly, if oneself, sorry, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Ego itself is everything. Therefore, investigating what this is, is giving up everything. That is, if we investigate ego, 
as he said in the previous verse, in verse 25, he says, Tedinal autum pidicum. If sought, it takes flight. So the nature of ego is to rise, stand, and flourish by attending to things other than itself. So long as it's attending to things other than itself, it's not looking at itself. If instead of attending to other things, if we as ego turn our attention back within to see who am I, ego will thereby take flight. Because ego doesn't actually exist. We seem to be ego only so long as we're looking at other things. If we look at ourselves keenly enough, we will see that what we actually are is just pure awareness. So ego will thereby cease to exist, and everything else will therefore cease to exist, because everything else exists only in the view of ego. That's why Bhagavan says in verse 26, by, by uh, investigating uh, the, what this ego is, it, that is investigating what this ego is, is giving up everything. Because by investigating ego, we thereby give up ego. And since everything else exists only in the view of ego, we thereby give up everything else. Another place where he says this also is verse 14. In verse 14 of Urudhanapadu, what he says is, if, that, if the first person uh, um, uh, exists, second and third persons will exist. If by oneself investigating the reality of the first person, the first person here means ego, the first person ceases to exist, second and third persons will come to an end, and what the nature that then shines as one alone, undivided by these three is the implication, that shines as one alone, is oneself, uh, the real nature or state of oneself. So he's, in so many ways he's emphasizing in Uladunapdu, but if we know ourselves, if we know the reality of ego, ego will thereby cease to exist, and everything else will cease to exist along with it. So that's what he, he means here in this verse 11 by saying, when one knows oneself, the support for knowledge and the other, knowledge and ignorance will cease. So all knowledge and ignorance exists only because we do not know ourselves. When we know ourselves, then knowledge and ignorance of all other things will cease. And what will then remain shining is our own real nature, which is pure awareness, and that alone is real awareness, is the implication. As Bhagavan says, for example, in verse 16 of Upadeshundia, Velividyangale uh, Vittu, letting go of external phenomena. That means, that implies ceasing to be aware of anything other than ourselves. Manam tan oli uru ordele, the mind knowing its own form of light, unme uh, unichiam, uh, that alone is real uh, awareness. So, real awareness is not knowing anything other than ourselves. Knowing anything other than ourselves is ignorance. Real awareness is knowing ourselves alone. As he said in the pre at the end of the previous verse, tanne ariyum arive arivu. Uh, awareness that knows oneself alone is awareness. In, in other words, the only, that alone is real awareness. So I, I hope that's uh, an adequate explanation, explanation for that verse. But if anyone has any questions. Thank you, Michael. Um, so in, um, in, in, in Pathos Ramana, um, Swami Sadhuvam, 
discusses this set of verses, right? 9, 10, 11, and 12 as a, as a separate appendix. Um, and in that, he, he clarifies the, you know, the mistaken impression of oneself um, by some as, um, you know, the, fund, the fundamental reality itself. Um, and that leading to a lot of, you know, uh, misperception um, um, uh, among many devotees. Can you tell me what what really was the background? I, I was wondering, you know, what, what was the uh, reason that Swami had to go in and clarify uh, who exactly misinterpreted it, if you know. Um, and um, I was just curious about that. <laughs> most of the English, in most of the English translation that existed in those days, uh, mm. it had been misinterpreted. That is, as soon as people see the word, the, the Tamil word tan, or any of its various forms like tanne, tan means oneself. So they take the self. They at once put a, the self with a capital S, um, like, like Atman. Wherever people come across the word Atman in Sanskrit, they at once jump to the conclusion that it's referring to Atman is Brahman. So whenever the word Atman is used, it's referring only to Brahman. They jump to that conclusion without understanding the word Atman simply means oneself, like the word Tamil, uh, Tan in Tamil. Whether it's referring to ourself as we actually are, or ourself as ego, or ourself in general, depends upon the context. So without understanding what Bhagavan is saying in Uludunapadu, people just take the words and they, they once, oh, Tan, that must mean the self. The self, you once have to put a capital S and you have to put the before it, as if there's something called the self. There is nothing called, there is no such thing as the self. What exists is only our self. It's not, it's not some, that when we, when we, when we add an, a definite article before it and say the self, we at once are reifying it. And when we put a capital S, it's then we, we have two selves. We have this little self, me, this poor little fellow here, and uh, with a small s, and that big self that I'm seeking to know, as if it's, there's some, uh, some higher self or greater self or whatever. People have so many words for it. There is no higher self. There's only one self, and you are that tatvamasi. So people miss the point. People, people who lack subtle understanding, they jump to the wrong conclusion. Right, and that's what this um, this verse is trying to clarify. Yes. You know, Swami's explanation is trying to clarify and what you did to today. Yes. Um, so, I, in um, Rajat is asking this question, in happiness and out of being, you say, if we clearly knew exactly what we are, we could not mistake ourselves to be something that we are not. This seems to me to be a tautology repetition. Could you please clarify the sentence? That is now we are aware of our some, ourselves as something that we are not. We are aware of ourselves as this body. A little bit of reasoning will uh, enable us to understand that this body cannot be what we actually are. But the, the most obvious reason is if this body were what we actually are, we couldn't be aware of ourselves without being aware of this body. But we're clearly aware of ourselves, for example, in dream, without being aware of this body. 
supposedly, or what we all generally suppose, but it's not actually the case, this body is lying asleep in the bed. But we are running around doing so many uh, things. So the body we know in a dream is not this body. So in dream we know that body as I am this body. In this state we know this body as I am this body. But we cannot be either of these bodies because we we are aware of ourselves in the other state without being aware of the 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 body of that is in waking we're aware of ourselves without being aware of the dream body as I in dream we're aware of us self as the dream body without being aware of this body so we cannot be either of these bodies and in sleep we're aware of ourselves without being aware of any body at all. So we clearly have a wrong knowledge of ourselves now. We are aware of ourselves as something other than what we actually are. If we were aware of ourselves as we actually are, we couldn't be aware of ourselves as anything else. That's all I'm saying there. So the means to get rid of the wrong knowledge is to, uh, is to acquire the uh, correct knowledge. We have a wrong knowledge. We, we see a something lying on the ground, and we mistake it to be a snake. That's, that knowledge, this is a snake, is a wrong knowledge. How can we remove that not wrong knowledge? If we look at that snake carefully enough, what do we see? Oh, it's not a snake, it's just a rope. When we see it as a rope, we can no longer see it as a snake. Some people say here, no, but you can still imagine that it's a snake. Yes, of course you can imagine, but you, you can't actually believe it's a snake. The fear that you felt previously vanishes as soon as you clearly recognize, oh, it's just a, a, a rope. So having once seen it's a rope, you can never again, unless you forget, <laughs> but I mean, in normal circumstances, you can never again mistake it to be a, a snake, because you've clearly seen, ah, it is a, it is a rope. Once you, that, that knowledge, this is a rope, removes the, the ignorance, this is a snake. Thank you, Michael. And that leads to the next question. Um, is Bhagwan not knowledgeable of our ignorance? <laughs> Does God not know the nature of our sufferings? <laughs> so we want to impose our ignorance on Bhagavan, but he also he's aware of our ignorance. No, in the view of, of pure awareness, which is Bhagavan, there is no such thing as ignorance. However, our own real nature is not only pure and uh, pure being and pure awareness, it's also pure love. So, though Bhagavan is not aware of ourself, us as anything other than himself, or because he's not aware of, ourself, of, of us as anything other than himself, he loves us as himself. And his love is what we experience as his grace. So, though his grace is never does anything, it is just being, its nature is just to be, but by the... As, as Bhagavan says in the 15th paragraph of Nana, all these, uh, the, the panchakritya, panchakritya means the five uh, uh, divine functions, the five functions of God, which are creation, sustenance, dissolution, veiling, and grace. These five functions, how do they happen? Isan sanidana visesha matratal, by the mere special nature of the, of, um, 
by the mere special nature of the presence of God. The presence of God means by his mere being it's happening. So Bhagavan need not know our ignorance. He, all Bhagavan knows is pure being. But because he knows only pure being, he knows us as that pure being. So he loves us as himself, and as a result of that love, um, he, 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 that his love works in the form of grace in our life. So without doing anything, without knowing any ignorance, Bhagavan removes the ignorance just by being as he is. So we, we cannot understand Bhagavan's state. We try with our little mind to understand that which is beyond mind. We cannot do so. So from our perspective, yes, it's true. Bhagavan uh, does know our ignorance. He's immensely compassionate. He's, he's working hard to remove our ignorance. That's from our point of view. From his point of view, there is a pure awareness, but by the mere by his merely being as he is, by his merely being the infinite love that he is, our ignorance is thereby removed. Michael. Yes. Namaskaram. Namaskaram. So that mean, that explains why Bhagwan is, is not a psychologist, right? But is it fair to say that the best psychologist can go to Bhagwan for advice, and he will give the best advice. Bhagavan is not a psychologist, but there's no better psychologist than Bhagavan. <laughs> That's what I'm saying, yes. He knows the underlying reality of the mind. He knows what the mind actually is. So the psychologist knows the knows the mind superficially. They only know the surface of the mind, but what the underlying reality of the mind is, is known only to Bhagavan. So he is, at the same time, not a psychologist and the greatest of all psychologists. So yes, psychologists obviously can learn a lot from Bhagavan. But what they will ultimately learn about is not about the mind, but about the underlying reality of the mind. And when we know the underlying reality of the mind, the mind ceases to exist. If you're, if you're very curious to know what species of snake it is, if you look at it very carefully to see, is it a cobra or is it a, a rattlesnake or a grass snake or this snake or that snake, if you look at it very closely, what do you come to know? Or oh, it's not a snake at all, it's just a rope. So when, if we investigate the root of the mind, that is the psychologist, that is the mind, as Bhagavan says in verse 18 of Upadeshundia, uh, thoughts alone are the mind. So the, the totality of all thoughts are what we collectively refer to as mind. But of all those thoughts, the root thought is the first thought I, that is ego. All the other thoughts exist only in the view of ego. So what the mind essentially is, is only ego. But the psychologists are making research on other thoughts. They are not making research on ego, because ego, you cannot investigate ego objectively, because ego is not an object, it's the subject, it's the knower of all objects. So to investigate ego, the only way is to turn within and uh, 
try to see who am I. That is investigating ego. So the, the, the psychologists are investigating everything except the essential nature of the mind, which is ego. And if we investigate the ego, there's not even such a thing as ego. The reality of ego is only I am. I am is not a thought. I am is the re underlying reality. The thought is, I am this body, I am this person. That is ego. So when Bhagavan says ego is a thought, the first thought, the thought called I, why he says it's a thought? Because it is a, it is a, uh, it is a conflation of what is real and what is unreal. What is unreal is this body, which is just a thought. What is real is I am. I am is the chit portion of ego. Um, uh, the body is the jada portion. The ego is the chit jada granti, but not formed by the entanglement of chit and jada. When we investigate ego, we're investigating the chit portion. The jada portion will fall off, and chit, the pure chit alone will remain. Chit means awareness. Thank you, Michael. Um, so I have um, this question from Lean. How do I know that my actions or actions of my true self are the actions of my ego? For example, if I fail in a test or a project, do I say this is my prarabdha and quit trying? Or do I give it another try? Will that mean I am defying my destiny and giving in to my ego? <laughs> we can't answer these so simply, but first we need to clarify certain things. Our real self does not have any actions. The, the nature of our, what we actually are, our real nature is pure being. It is not doing, but pure being. So there is no actions for our real nature. The doer of actions is ego. Why is ego the doer of action? The actual doer of the actions is the instruments of action. There are three instruments of action, mind, speech, and body. Because this mind, speech, and body form the person that we take ourselves to be. Because as ego, we're aware of ourselves as I am this body, as I am this person, this, this bundle that includes these three instruments, whatever actions are done by the body, are actions done by me. I am sitting, I am standing, I am walking, and so on. Whatever actions are done by the speech, I am talking, uh, we identify with that. Whatever actions are done by mind, I am thinking, I am feeling, I am this, I am that. All these, we identify ourselves with all the actions of these uh, three instruments of action, uh, so long as we rise as ego. So the doer of action is ego. It is ego who's the driving force behind action. Why does the mind think? Why does the speak? Why, why do we, why does the speech speak? Why does the body act? It's all driven by ego. So ego is the driving force. Because we do actions, Actions uh, will uh, result in, in, in fruit, that is the fruit of action. That means the, the moral consequence of the actions we do. So if we do a bad action, 
but it'll be a bad fruit. If we do good action, a good fruit. But fruit of, or if we do, most of the actions we do are neither particularly good nor particularly bad. So it'll be a neutral fruit. But fruit of the action, as soon as we do the action, the actions are out, the fruit is out of our hands. The fruit is entirely in the hands of God. So the fruit is stored in Sanchitta. Whatever actions we do in this lifetime, we will not experience the fruit of those actions in this lifetime. Those fruit get stored in Sanchitta. What we are to experience in this lifetime is already predetermined. It's all that is it. That is the fruit the, the, from the Sanchitta, the store of of the fruit of our past actions that we haven't yet experienced. For each life, God selects a, 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 a certain portion. That is, a, he selects from the vast heap of uh, of uh, fruits, he selects those fruit which will be most conducive to our experiencing ourselves, to, to get most conducive to our uh, spiritual development. So that is what we experience as prarabdha. So whatever we are to experience in this life is already predetermined. However, in order for us to experience all that we are to experience, certain actions are necessary on our part. For example, if you are destined to become a doctor, you have to study um, for so many years in university and you have to pass your exams and everything. Without, without these actions, you will not become a doctor. So you will be made to do, and that, that's a big major thing, but even for a, a small thing, if it's your destiny to eat a meal now, you have to at least put the food in your mouth and chew it. So there are actions we have to do in order for our prarabdha to unfold. So as Bhagavan said in the first sentence of a note he wrote to his mother, According to the, the prarabdha of each one, he who is for that, meaning God or Guru, being there, there, meaning being in the heart of each of them, will make them dance. In other words, we'll be made to do whatever actions are necessary in order for our prarabdha to unfold. Many people mistake this to mean all our actions are actions we're made to do by God. That would be absurd. If all the actions we do were actions we are made to do by God, we would not be the doer of action. God would be the doer. He would have to experience the fruit. The fact that we experience the fruit of our past actions means we are the so it's we are the doer of those actions whose fruit we are now experiencing. So there are two forces driving our actions. On the one hand, there's ego and it's Vishaya Vasanas. Whatever actions we do under the sway of our Vishaya Vasanas, in other words, in accordance with our own will, those actions are a gamya. But some of the actions are actions we are made to do by God uh, in order for our, us to experience these uh, uh, our present prarabdha. Those actions we are made to do by God. Well, we don't have to experience the fruit of those. However, there's another complication here, because often many of the action people ask, if I do this, is that is that according in accordance with my will or in accordance with prarabdha? We cannot say. Often it may be both. For example, supposing it's your destiny to be a doctor, you have to study and pass the exams. You'll be made to study and pass the exams. 
But how many people are there who become doctors without having any wish to become a doctor at all? Very, very few. That is, most of the actions we do, even if they're, they're actions we're made to do in accordance with our destiny, they're also actions we want to do. I'm feeling hungry, so I eat. I couldn't eat if it wasn't my destiny to eat, if I wasn't destined to experience that uh, satiation of my hunger. So my eating is, in a, is an action I'm made to do by God in accordance with my destiny. But it's also an action I'm made to do by my desire. I, I'm really hungry. I want food. So the, we cannot distinguish to what extent any particular action is driven by our will and to what extent it's driven by the will of God. And we need not distinguish that. If, um, in the example that was given, some we fail in some uh, project, some undertaking. We cannot say, okay, that that initial failure is according to destiny. We couldn't experience that failure if it weren't if we weren't destined to experience. But just because we failed today doesn't mean that we shouldn't try again tomorrow. If if we if we are trying for a, a, a worthy undertaking, we shouldn't give up at the first under for the first sign of failure. If we feel an action is the right action to do, then it's reasonable to try to do that action. If we fail, it's reasonable to try again. We shouldn't immediately conclude, oh, it's, uh, it's uh, I'm going against destiny. If it's not your destiny, however many times you try, it will fail. Sooner or later, we may get the message, okay, time to give up. This isn't meant to be. So we give up. But what if it's our destiny to try and try and try again, I mean, if it's our destiny to succeed after many attempts, we'll be made to try again and again. And probably we'll also be driven by the desire to try again and again. So we cannot distinguish which actions are actions we are made to do by God in accordance with our prarabdha and which actions are driven by our will. Whatever actions we're made to do by God, we cannot avoid doing. So we need not be concerned about those actions at all. Regarding the actions we do in accordance with our will, we do action only when we allow ourselves to be swayed by our Vishaya Vasanas. That is, Vishaya Vasanas are what lead our attention away from ourselves. The movement of our attention away from ourselves is what is called mental activity. Mental activity. Uh, uh, if we if we follow on with that mental activity, it will it can lead to actions of speech and actions of body. So, if we want to avoid doing a gamya, in other words, if we want to avoid doing any actions according to our own will, there is a simple means, the means that Bhagavan has taught us. If we turn within and hold on to our own being without allowing our attention to come outwards. Then we 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 since our attention is coming out under the sway of our share of asanas, we are thereby not doing any agamya. So whatever actions may then be done by mind, speech, or body would be actions that uh, they are, these instruments are made to do by God. That is the simple solution. However, 
for most of us, because we don't have sufficient love to hold on to our own being, we try for a few moments to hold on to our being, and then again our attention slips outwards. So we have to persevere in the practice. So while we're in the course of this practice, we are, our attention is oscillating between going out and coming back, going out and coming back. Every time it goes out, we try to bring it back. To the extent to which it goes outwards, we are thereby doing a gamya, at least by mind, if not also by speech and body. So uh, to the extent it goes inwards, we are thereby subsiding and not doing anything. So it's all, this is the practice that Bhagavan has taught us, turning our attention within and thereby not allowing ourselves to be swayed by our vishaya vasanas. The more we turn our attention in, the less we will be swayed by our vishaya vasanas. The less we are swayed by our vishaya vasanas, the weaker they become. That is, vasanas are our own likes and dis our own, own likings and dislikings. So they have no strength of their own. They derive their strength from us. We strengthen our vasanas by allowing ourselves to be swayed by them. We weaken them by not allowing ourselves to be swayed by them. So by holding on to self-attentiveness, we are thereby uh, weakening the vishaya vasanas and we are strengthening the opposite vasana, the sat vasana. But sat vasana means the being vasana, the inclination just to hold on to our being and thereby subside and remain as we actually are, just being as we actually are. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Right. Um, Bruce is asking, um, verse 11 speaks of the screen, verse 13 speaks of the substance, not the ornaments. Is the screen without thoughts the substance? Yeah. The Adara, yes. The, well, in, in verse eleven, we can uh, we can take the Adara. Um, what Bhagavan actually says there is, "Arivu ayaku Adara," the base for the knowledge uh, and ignorance. The base for the knowledge and ignorance is ego. The base for ego is is the substance, is the real substance. So here he's using Adara, the ego is the Adara, he's talking about the immediate Adara. Uh, but when he says knowing oneself, he means knowing the reality of oneself, of, of e that is ego is the base of knowledge and ignorance. Knowing oneself means knowing the reality of ego, which is the base for knowledge and ignorance. So he's using Adara here in a slightly different sense. He's using it to refer to ego. But the ultimate adhara for knowledge and ignorance is the adhara for ego, and that is the real substance. Is, is that distinction clear? So when we read Bhagavan's words, we need to read very carefully. We need to be sure that we're understanding correctly. We shouldn't take it to mean that uh, our real nature is what knows all other things. That is not what Bhagavan means. What knows other things is only ego. Ego, ego is, is, is the false awareness, I am this body. Only when we're aware of ourselves as I am this body are we aware of, the, uh, of other things. So knowledge and ignorance of other things exists only for ego. So ego is the adhara for knowledge and ignorance. 
But our data for ego is that is ego is by false awareness. I am I am Bruce. I am Michael. I am Kumar. I am whoever. But but the reality of ego is I am. Thank you, Michael. Um, that is often when Bhagavan talks about Tane um, Arya, when one knows oneself, or Tane uh, Aryam Arive. He's using Tane as a as a as a shortcut for the reality of oneself. But in other places, he talks about the reality of, um, for example, in verse um, fourteen, uh, he says. Um, if the first person ceases, uh, in, uh, the implication is by investigating, by one investigating the reality of the first person. There he clearly says, and also in verse 8, ondu means can be taken to mean investigating or knowing. It means both, investigating and knowing the reality of oneself. So in some places, he specifies the reality of ourself, meaning the reality of ego. In some places, because he's writing poetry, he abbreviates it and just says oneself. We need to understand from the context, but what we are to know is the reality of ourself. What is the basis for in other words, the reality of ego. What is the basis for knowledge and ignorance is ego. So what we need to know is the reality of ego, which is the base for knowledge and ignorance. That is the implication. Is that a clear answer, Bruce? Yes. The uh, so the, the the mind is the uh, response, if you want to call it, to sense sensory input that is all second person or beyond third person and then yeah. the uh and then the screen itself let's say the screen whether it has a movie on it or whether it's a blank screen it's a it's the neutral eye in a sense of the ego which Ego it, is never just... neutral ego is never neutral <laughs> <laughs> right exactly right yeah <laughs> Bhagavan describes ego as a pay. Pay means an evil spirit. In verse 25, he says, uh, <laughs> So we don't let the ego for hook. Ego is the number one culprit. As Bhagavan right. said, ego is the original sin. Why is ego right. the original sin? Because it's the sinner. Where does sin originate from? It originates from the sinner. So, that is the problem. So when we talk about the screen, we can refer, in a certain sense, ego is the screen. But it's not the ultimate screen. The ultimate right. screen is our real nature. Right. That's of clear. course, all yeah. these analogies, like talking about screen and everything, these are mm -hmm. all... Um, the, they all have their limitations. But for one one of the main principles we need to understand in Uludunapadu, this is where, where the question Kumar asked earlier, referring to that appendix in um in Pathasri Ramana, where Sadhuam talks about how these verses 9, 10, 11, 12 have been misinterpreted. 
And it, it, not only these verses, other verses of Ulladunapada also, because people fail to understand that the main point Bhagavan is making, what is the basis of everything? It is ego. The basis of ego is our real nature. But Bhagavan is generally talking about ego. Because, for example, in the Upanishads, it is said, all this is uh, Brahman, which is true in a sense. But what does Bhagavan tell us in verse 26? of Uladunapadu, Ahandeya Yavamam, ego itself is everything. So the Upanishads say everything is Brahman, and Bhagavan says everything is ego. Is, is Bhagavan contradicting the Upanishads? No. Bhagavan is refining what they have said. He's making it clear. He's clarifying what they said. In what sense is everything Brahman? Everything is ego, because everything exists only in the view of ego. It's only ego's mental impressions that appear as all other things. So nothing exists independent of ego. And ego doesn't exist independent of Brahman, which is what is shiny in us as I am. So since everything is ego, and since ego is Brahman, therefore everything is Brahman. But why does Bhagavan emphasize that everything is ego? Because if everything is Brahman, how do we get rid of everything? If you're told everything is Brahman, we, we definitely can't get rid of Brahman because Brahman is what we actually are. We can surrender what we are not. We cannot surrender what we actually are. So we cannot get rid of Brahman. So does that mean that we're forever lumbered with all this multiplicity? No. Bhagavan gives, Bhagavan's teachings are extremely practical. So he points out what, where, where in this elaborate machine, where is the original defect that has caused all the other problems? The original defect is ego. Remove ego, every, when, when, as Bhagavan says in verse 26, ego itself is everything, therefore investigating what it is, is giving up everything. That means it's giving up ego and everything else. So if we remove ego, everything else is removed, and then what remains is Brahman as it is. In other words, ourself as we actually are. Right. So the expression is the ornament. The reality is the substance. Yes. E ego and all its knowledge of multiplicity is the is the the many ornaments yeah. and um uh the, the sub underlying substance is i am okay in other words our real nature brahman the pure i am is the substance thank you bhagavan <laughs> <laughs> so um so bhagavan's contribution is it's explained that intermediate layer Yes, um, yes. That no, is what uh, that that Bhagavan, is his biggest contribution, right? Like to explain Bhagavan, that ego. Yeah, Bhagavan's teachings are extremely practical because the practice, the practical implication of Vedanta of, of, was missed. Where it was not most people fail. I mean, some people certainly would have grasped it and would have understood, but the majority of people failed to grasp the practical implication of all that was said in the Upanishads and Bhagavad Gita and Brahma Sutra and all these other uh, commentaries on them and texts, but the, the, in, the practical implication was missed. So Bhagavan came to clarify the practice. And 
when clarifying the practice, he also clarified the, 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 the basic principles. What is called Ajnana or Avidya, what is that? It's not something other than ourselves. Ego itself is that Avidya. There's no Avidya other than ego. There's no Maya other than ego. It's all, Bhagavan boils it all down to ego. If you remove ego, you've got rid of Avidya, you've got rid of Maya, you've got rid of everything. Right. So Bhagavan has greatly simplified Advaita. And Advaita should be simple because Advaita means not two. Ekameva Advaitium, one only without a second. So it shouldn't be complicated. But human minds have complicated it. So Bhagavan brought it back to its simple, uh, to its simple fundamentals. In all... In all Advaitic traditions, Advaita Vedanta, there are so many other schools of thought that call themselves non-dualistic, but uh, like Kashmir Shaivism and so on, but they say the world is real, so it's not really non-duality. So there are so many uh, would-be Advaitins who are not real Advaitins, but in Advaita Vedanta, one of the fundamental principles is what is called Vivata Vada. Vivata means uh, illusory appearance. That is, the, the basic uh, principle of Advaita is ekam eva advaitiam. There is only one, there is one only without a second. If there's one only without a second, then how to account for all this multiplicity? That's the obvious objection to Advaita. But there, we see so many things, how can you say there's one only without a second? So, the, the simple answer of Advaita is, this is all an illusory appearance. That is true, and that did Bhagavan has also emphasized that. But Bhagavan pointed out the practical implication of this. Okay, if all this is an illusory appearance, to whom does it appear? Nobody has pointed this out, but Bhagavan pointed it out. There cannot be an illusory appearance without something to whom it appears. To whom does it appear? Does it appear to Brahman? No, it appears only to ego. So the, uh, there cannot be an appearance without one to whom it appears, the one to whom all appearances appear is only ego. So in so many ways, Bhagavan has refined and clarified what is taught in the... So if we want to understand, Bhagavan, unlike all the ancient Acharyas, but in the old days, to be qualified as an Acharya, you had to write commentary on the... Um, on the um, uh, Upanishads, at least the ten major Upanishads, on the Brahma Sutra and on the Bhagavad Gita. Very minimum on the Brahma Sutra. Without writing a commentary on Brahma Sutra, you're not an Acharya. So Shankaracharya wrote commentary on all three. Ramanuja Acharya, Madhvacharya, and so many other Acharyas have written commentaries on these. Bhagavan hasn't written any commentaries. But what is the best commentary on all of the Upanishads, on all of the Brahma Sutras, and all of the Bhagavad Gita, Bhagavan's teachings? Without referring specifically to those, he has clarified the essence of them. So we can say Uludu Napadu is the greatest, uh, is the greatest uh, Bhashya on all of the Prasthanatraya. Prasanatraya means the three source texts of Vedanta are the, the Upanishads, the Brahma Sutra, and the Bhagavad Gita. These are called the Prasthanatraya. 
Ulu Dunapadu is the greatest commentary on these. Bhagavan hasn't analyzed the grammar of all these and argued about the different words. He hasn't referred to them at all, but he's distilled the essence of them and presented them to us in the form of Ulu Dunapadu, Pradeshundia, Nana, Amavide, Akshramlai, all these works. These are the very essence of all the Vedanta. Vedantate Vera Ravilangum Veda Poral Aralaranachala Bhagavan sings in Aranachaksram like give me the, the essence or the import of Vedanta which shines without another, without a second, without another in Vedanta. What Bhagavan has given us is that is that essence. He he's distilled the essence of the whole of Vedanta in his works. And so Bhagavan's teachings are the greatest commentary on the whole of Vedanta. And he goes beyond it. Yes. Me. It's like, you know, you, you read all the, the Vedantic scriptures, and then when you read Ulladhanarpadu, yeah. he seems to go beyond it. Yeah, it, it clarifies it in so many ways. It simplifies and clarifies. Right. Thank you, Michael. Um, and where, where things are put very beautifully in the old text. Bhagavan freely translates. There's, what is the essence of all of Vedanta? Bhagavan uh, says in the last verse of, uh, of Uladunapadu Anabandam. But this is not an original verse of Bhagavan. This is a verse that he translated. But it beautifully summarizes Bhagavan's teachings. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Akila Vedanta Siddhanta uh, uh, Sarate Aha Aham unmayaha arevan. I will say what is the essence of the final conclusion of the whole of Vedanta. <laughs> Aham setu, I dying. Aham adu ahi, I becoming that. Uh, uh, no, sorry, if, if I are hill. If I dies and I becomes that, Arivu uh, Uruvam Aham, that I, which is pure awareness, alone will remain. So if, if I dies and thereby becomes that, what remains, what will then remain, uh, that, that is, then that I alone is what will remain. So that, that is the, is the essence. The essence of it all. But the crucial thing is, aham setu, I dying, that I that is to die is not Brahman, obviously. That I that is to die is ego. The, 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 the adjunct mixed awareness, I am this, I am so and so. When this adjunct mixed awareness uh, dies, the, um, the real awareness I am alone remains, is what, what he, and that is Brahman. Thank you, Michael. Um, so D is asking this question. Um, so the ego cannot know the self, and the self does not know the ego. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, once, uh, uh, I think it's recorded, if I remember correctly, in letters from Sri Ramanashram. Some f foreign visitor um, came to Ramanashram, and while he was uh, just, he was just a, sh a short stay, maybe just one day visit or a few days or whatever. While he was visiting, um, the temple elephant visited the ashram. Uh, 
So he took a picture of Bhagavan and the temple elephant. And when he went back to his country, he wrote a letter to, to Bhagavan, uh, enclosing uh, a print of the picture he had taken. And he, he, in his, uh, in, in below that picture, on the back of that picture, he said, uh, a big body but doesn't know the self, and a big self but doesn't know the body. <laughs> so the elephant is a big body but doesn't know itself. Bhagavan is a big self but doesn't know the body. So when Bhagavan saw that, he read it out and said, Bele, Bele, very good, very good. Mm -hmm. So some people come for a very short stay, but they understand what Bhagavan is all about. And some, some hang around for a long time and they still don't get it. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Like Bhagavan said in Guru Bhattacharya, like the shadow of the foot of a lamp, though they hang around there for a long time, they don't get it. So, Michael, this is yeah. Namaskaram. So, I'm the Namaskaram. one that doesn't, get, that doesn't get it category. Well, so. we're all in that category. Don't worry. You're in good, you're in bad company <laughs> with all of the rest of us. <laughs> No, so so where does that leave me? Like I cannot know myself, and the self does not know me. So where who said, am I? Who said you cannot know yourself? I, the ego, is saying that. Ego cannot know itself, but you can know yourself. So the one talking to you right now, who is the one talking to you? That is, you can't ask me. You have to find out for yourself. <laughs> I can't tell you who you are. If you, if. The one who is now talking, let's say, just for the sake of argument, this one who is now talking is ego. If ego looks within to see who am I, ego will find that it is, it is not ego, it is that pure awareness. That pure awareness always knows itself. So ego as ego cannot know itself. Ego as it actually is always knows itself. But that is there are not two eyes an ego eye and another eye. It's the right. same eye in its pure condition, that is what is called Brahman or Atmasarupa or pure awareness or uh, Bhagavan or God or whatever. When it's mixed and conflated with adjuncts, it's called ego. So the reality, that is though the ego as such does not exist, ego is not wholly non-existent because there's an element of existence, of real existence in ego. That element of real existence is I am. That is the only real existence. And that I am is quality-less, like it has no quality. Yes, yes, it's Niguna, Niguna Brahman. So that's what I, I mean, I think I wanted to have some quality. Because... <laughs> that is the problem with all of us. We're still clinging, clinging on to those uh, qualities. We're not ready to let go. That is the whole problem. Yes, because when I try to look within and I'm trying, it just leaves me the most I can do, I guess, is intellectual. So the most I get to is, it's just nothing. That's not the most you can do. You can always turn within. What you mean by intellectual is conceptual. But the, what is the real nature of the intellect? The nature of the intellect is to see clearly. The intellect means that ability to distinguish, to, to, to discern dif uh, differences. So the, the ego is, the intellect is the power of discernment. 
That power of discernment, so long as we look outwards, it is clouded and confused. If we turn that power of discernment inwards to see who am I, it will thereby merge back into its source. So, yes, very well, yes. So, uh, yes, conceptually, we, any conceptual understanding is, of course, limited. Concepts are limited. But we need to go beyond the conceptual understanding. The only way to go beyond it is to follow the direction in which Bhagavan is pointing us, which is to look within. The, the more we look within, the more we will thereby subside, and eventually we will merge in, that, in, in our own reality forever. And once we merge in that, there will not even have been a merger because we were never out of that. We, that, that is why Bhagavan says, Nittama Mukti Nilay, a, a state of liberation which is eternal. He says, I think, in verse uh, 38 of Uludunapta, if I remember. Yeah, 38. So the, we are ever liberated. We ever know ourselves. It's only because we seem to have risen as ego, we now lament, I don't know myself. How can I, as ego, ever know myself? Yes, as ego, we can never know ourselves. But ego is not what we actually are. All we need to do is to shed this false identification, and it'll be clear that we have always known ourselves. Even <laughs> now, with this false identification, do we not know I am? There's nothing more to know than I am. The problem is we know more than that. So it's not a matter of gaining new knowledge, it's a matter of shedding the false knowledge, and the true knowledge alone will remain. And, and I guess I, the... as Bhagavan says in that final verse of Uludunapdhanabandam, if if I dies, or if I dying, I becomes that um uh, uh, that I, which is awareness, alone will remain. Mm. And that is the nature of awareness is peace and um, yes, happiness. Yes. So yes. we can call those as qualities in in a sense. I mean, well, I when I am when I we we that is our little to the extent to which we can grasp it. Yes, it's mm. peace because there's no lack of peace there. There's no there's no turmoil there. There's no agitation there. So in that sense, it's peace. But it's the peace which is beyond the duality of peace and turmoil. So we, with our intellect, with our concepts, we cannot grasp it. Uh, the concepts may point towards it, but if we want to know it, we have to be it. Knowing alone is being. And in order to be that, we need to be swallowed. So, Unadal uh, Khan, as Bhagavan says in verse 21, becoming food is seeing. Can you talk about that a little bit more? The consumption of ourselves. Uh, I mean, in Christianity, that's featured very highly uh, through the sacrament of, you know, the Eucharist and all that. Um, but it's like, this idea, I've also heard the expression of uh, going into the labyrinth and God is at the center of the labyrinth. And when we get to the center of the labyrinth, God will consume us. Yes, yes, that is true. But that, that labyrinth is the labyrinth of our own mind. The center is the heart. Um, when we enter the heart, we will be swallowed. 
um, in Christianity, though Christ said, unless you will die, unless you die and are born again, you will not enter the kingdom of God and so many things like that. But trouble is, Christian theologians, since the very early times, though they had a concept of what they is sometimes called theosis or divinization, um, even, even those Christians who accept that, and this this though this is core Christian teaching, it is very much um the majority of Christians are hardly even aware of this. But even those who accept this idea of theosis or divinization, they don't accept that we can totally lose ourselves in God. That is, Michael, we can partake Michael, of the divine nature, but we cannot lose ourselves in God. So they're talking about something different. What Bhagavan is Michael, talking Michael, about. Michael, as a Christian, as a Christian yes. uh, and a pastor, I completely validate what you just said. Yes. The problem came in the first century, or the, the New Testament, two yes. thirds of it, other than the Gospels are written by Paul, who was trained by Gamaliel, a uh, Hellenistic mind. Aristotle and and, uh, and uh, Plato and so forth, which were totally dualistic. So yeah. from the very beginning, it's only the mystics, not only in the Christian faith, but all other major traditions, who speak in a non-dual way. Yes, I agree with you one hundred percent. Yes, yes. So, so, um, but and the trouble, the trouble is, is often the the mystics say one thing. I mean, it's interpreted by the theologians and the philosophers in their own dualistic way. It happens also in Hinduism. In Hinduism, the, uh, the, even in Advaita, the, the great saints of, of Advaita have very clearly spoken the truth. But the, the, the pundits, the academics, the, 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 those like me who give lectures, we all um we all uh, uh bring it down to our level so we 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 spoil it not that you, is Michael. why bhagavan came to give <laughs> to give the essence the practical essence so we should if we want to understand bhagavan correctly we need to understand bhagavan teaching through the lens of the practice that he taught us. If we forget about the practice, if we forget that Bhagavan's teachings are all about practice, that in what is uh, uh, some, some, a year or two ago, in some context, I had commented, but Uludu um, Napadu is an is a, is a extremely practical text. And one person commented that they had known Uludu Napadu for so many years, they didn't think it was practical at all. But that's missing the point of Uludu Napadu. The whole purpose of Uludu Napadu, Bhagavan is stressing the practice. Even in a verse like this today, verse 8 we talked about, I mean verse 11, or, or see verse, verse um Verse uh, 10, Bhagavan says, um, <clears throat> only the knowledge that knows oneself who is the first, as to whom are that knowledge and ignorance, is knowledge. The practice is implied there, um, as it was in verse 9. In verse 9, Bhagavan says, if one sees within the mind what that one thing is, that is one thing that is the base of the dyads and triads, the, the dyads and triads depend on. If one sees within the mind what that one thing is, namely what that ego is, they will slip off. The dyads and triads will slip off. Then here in 11, he says, um, 
only the knowledge that knows oneself. In other words, he's emphasizing we need to know ourselves. Then the knowledge and ignorance will cease. And in this verse 11, um, when one knows oneself, the support for knowledge and the other, uh, knowledge and ignorance will cease. So in all these verses, he's constantly pointing out the practice. So the whole purpose of religion, the whole purpose of all of Bhagavan's teachings is all about the practice. The whole purpose, Bhagavan is constantly talking about, uh, I mean, if we understand Aksharamlai, he's talking about the practical application of these teachings. Nana is all about practice. Upadeshundi is all about practice. So Bhagavan's teachings are all about practice. If we if we forget the practice, if we try to make a philosophy of Bhagavan's teachings, that is academic philosophy, we are missing the point. Bhagavan did teach philosophy, but Bhagavan's philosophy was a very practical philosophy. The whole aim of the philosophy is the practice and the practice alone. Otherwise, as you as as you said, Robert, the the philosophers take over, and the practice gets forgotten, and the philosophers will always dilute it because they're always trying to understand it conceptually. What we are talking about, Bhagavan's teachings are pointing to that which is beyond all concepts. Yes, Bhagavan uses concepts, but to point beyond concepts. And if we miss that point, we miss the whole thing. And then Bhagavan's teachings get reduced to just another very nice philosophy. It happens in all religions in the world. The, the, the original teachings get lost. Get, um, Saduam used to say very nicely, he used to say, the followers of the swallowers of the master's principles. That, that's the universal law. <laughs> Who spoiled Michael. Buddha's teaching for Buddhists? Who spoiled Bhagavan's teaching? Bhagavan's followers. Who spoiled every teaching? It's for followers. We can have um, lessons from other religions, right? You can have lessons from other religions and not not uh, mess this one up. Because yeah. there's but so we, many yes. previous we, ones. We, we don't need anything from we don't need anything from any other religion. All we need to do is to Pay close attention to what Bhagavan has said and understand what he's pointing at is the practice. The practice is all important. Yeah, and coming, uh, going back to what Deepthi said, and you said that uh, that happiness doesn't have an opposite, right? Yes, yes. So, so, is... uh, so I actually had, had a disagreement with another uh, devotee here, and I said that real happiness we haven't really um that means we haven't it, it's not the happiness we have in in, in as ego right which has an opposite the happiness we it's have a different kind ego of is not other than that but it's always limited by ego the happiness that we actually are is infinite the infinite there's no opposite of infinite so infinite cannot be a part of a pair of opposites so the, the infinite happiness, the infinite being, the infinite uh, awareness that we actually are, there's no opposites of that. It's only in the realm of the finite that you have pairs of opposites. Hi, Michael. I have a question, Michael. Yes. Well, you said earlier that there was only one I. Yes. And... Uh, that I, unless you found any other eye, I've never found any other eye. 
<laughs> okay, and that that same I is of the nature of pure consciousness. Yes, but now there is a problem. Uh, that same I is now seemingly becoming Ajang's mixed awareness or consciousness. Yes. yes. Then does not that doesn't that imply that that pure consciousness has gone or has undergone changes if that is the case does it not negate the uh, the nature of pure consciousness which is changeless if if pure consciousness underwent any changes it would not be pure pure means it is devoid of all change that that is pure means it's untainted by anything there's no taint at all change is a is a is an imperfection, a taint, a, a, a blemish. There's no such blemish for pure awareness. If we investigate ego keenly enough, we will find, but in other words, if we investigate ourselves keenly enough, we will find that we are pure awareness. And but we have always been pure awareness. There, we have never risen as ego. E ego we seem to be ego. As Bhagavan used to say, because we are but due to avichara, because non-investigation, because we are not, instead of attending to ourselves, we're attending to other things. So we seem to be ego. If we turn our attention back within to see who am I, we will see that we are eternally pure awareness. Pure awareness is immutable, it cannot undergo any change. So that the Ajang's mixed awareness is only seemingly is it's not only real. seeming it's only seeming yes yeah okay thank you and another that, question that that that, that is bhagavan says in verse 24 bhagavan says the insentient body does not say i what he means by does not say i it's not aware of itself as i why is it not aware of itself because it's jada it's insentient it's not non-aware Satchit Udiyadu, Satchit does not rise. But in between, one thing rises as the extent of a body. Well, sorry, one thing I rises at the extent of a body. Since it rises, it's not Satchit. Since it is a, a, a I, it is not the body, but the body is not aware of itself as I. So it is neither Satchit nor is it the body, but it takes the properties of both. It borrows its substance, its existence, and its awareness from Satchit and says, I am. It borrows its form from the body and says, I am this body. So Bhagavan says, it is Chit Jadagranti. Chit means that pure awareness. Jada means the, what is not aware, in other words, the body. Granti means a not. So when Chit and Jada become entangled, the resulting entanglement is ego. But ego rises, Satchit doesn't rise. So Satchit is never actually getting entangled. It's only in the view of our self as ego, but Chit seems to be entangled with Jada. It's only in the view of the ego that we're aware of ourselves as I am this body. Satchit is never aware of itself as I am this body. Because Satchit does not rise, that means it doesn't, and it, it doesn't undergo any change whatsoever. 
Because changing, you can only, you have to rise in order to change, because you have to rise from one state to another state. You have to move from one state to another state. Satchit never undergoes any such change. It is, it is immutable. Okay, uh, another question, uh, yes. Michael. Could you please explain the difference between philosophy, spirituality, and religions? And uh, what is what does Bhagavan's teaching fall into? Is it spirituality, a philosophy, or religion? Essentially, it is spirituality. But they, 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 these three, are, we can't we can't totally demarcate that that is um, spirituality includes some elements of religion and some elements of philosophy at least at, uh, at the initial stages but of course spirituality points us beyond all of them in fact true spirituality points us beyond itself so we we need not put labels on it but um generally when we talk about religion religion two things about religion most religion most religious people let's say most religious people firstly they have an identity i am a christian i am a buddhist i am a hindu i am a muslim i am i am a jew i am a jain i'm sikh there's firstly there's an identification secondly their religion teaches them certain things that they should believe so in order to qualify to be a christian or a, a buddhist or a jain or a, a you have you have to believe the fundamentals of your religion you can't say i'm a christian but i don't believe in christian in the doctrines of christianity i'm an advaitin but i don't believe in Advait. it makes no sense so there's certain uh things you have uh, beliefs you have to take on board accept um in the case of spirituality as taught by bhagavan we have to question both these things firstly and most importantly we need to question our our identity so so long as we say i am a devotee of bhagavan we are not truly following bhagavan but <laughs> because i am this or i am that according to bhagavan is ignorance so to say i am a devotee of bhagavan i am a follower of bhagavan i am a disciple of bhagavan that is ignorant but true to be truly following bhagavan the only truth is i am not i am this or i am that so bhagavan the true spirituality is taught by bhagavan is questioning our identity and in order to question our identity we need to question all our beliefs bhagavan often <clears throat> used to say bhagavan never asked us to believe anything bhagavan used to say do not believe what you do not know bhagavan gave us his teachings he explained why it is reasonable for us to uh, to accept his teachings at least tentatively he gave us reasons for everything but we cannot the most important thing about our teaching is we can we can know these things for ourselves only by investigating mm. ourselves. So Bhagavan's path, true spirituality, is not about belief and it's not about identification. 
It's about questioning our belief. Yeah, I mean, questioning our identification and questioning all our beliefs. So this is a fundamental difference between spirituality and religion as, as it's understood by most people. However, there's a spectrum. In religion, there are many spiritual people. So to the extent to which one moves away from identity and moves away from uh, a blind acceptance of beliefs to, uh, towards investigating our own identity, our own reality, I mean, the, the investigating what we actually are. In other words, we had to know what we actually are. We need to uh, investigate the false identification that we have now. So we need to investigate and question our identity, and we need to question all our beliefs. Um, regarding philosophy, philosophy is all about asking questions. But what is the purpose of asking all these questions? What questions are useful to us? In philosophy, countless questions are asked. But are we to are we to look for an answer to every philosophical question? It's not necessary. What what can we what useful thing can we get from philosophy? The most useful philosophy is that philosophy that turns our attention within to investigate ourselves. Because we cannot know the truth of anything else without knowing the truth of ourselves. So the truly useful philosophy will point us to look within to see what we actually are. So Bhagavan's, Bhagavan's teachings are the pinnacle of philosophy. They're, they're, so what all philosophy should ultimately lead to, and what all religion should ultimately lead to, is the pure spirituality taught by Bhagavan, which may have elements that could be identified as religious, elements that could be identified as philosophical, but is actually going beyond. That the, is pointing us beyond religion and philosophy is the very essence of Bhagavan's teachings. Who am I? That goes question, beyond religion and philosophy. The question that he posed, uh, maybe it would be more helpful if it were more specific, because the such a general question uh, yes, about but, those those categories. Yes, but those doesn't go into the details about yeah. the foundation of their yes. assumptions made. In yes, each yes. category. Yes, yes. So, and those are they're very, very broad categories. How many different types of religion there are? How many different types of religious people there are? That is, even within each religion, there are people with so many different understandings of their own religion. Do all Christians believe the same thing? Do all Christians understand the same thing? No. Do all Muslims understand the same thing? No. Do all Hindus understand the same So there's huge variety within each religion. Likewise with philosophy. How many different types of philosophers, philosophies there are there? And do any two philosophers ever agree? No, they, they, there will always be differences. So these, are, these, these, these general uh, categories are of limited use. But Bhagavan has made clear what is our aim. We have one aim and one aim alone, to know who am I. Because only by knowing who am I can we get rid of the false awareness, I am this body, namely ego, which is the root cause of all problem. So Bhagavan, Bhagavan uh, takes the very best of religion, the very best of philosophy, but points beyond both. 
to be underlying reality, which is what is that underlying reality? You are that. We ourselves are that. So we can know that only by knowing ourselves. And to know ourselves, we need to turn our attention within to investigate who am I. Thank you, Michael. Um, last question. This uh, is a bit off the main topic, um, but then I'll still go ahead and post it today. Um, but one of the devotees wants to know um, the yugas, you know, the, the, the Kali Yuga, Treta Yuga, Satya Yuga, um, and so forth, and how that relates to our um, spiritual progress. Um, I guess I'm, um, that's how the question ends there, but my assumption is that, like, you know, because mm -hmm. it says in the scriptures that at certain age, it's it's so easy, in, you know, for progressing spiritually. And in Kali Yuga, you know, everything is not that good. You know, you might have heard that, right? Yeah. So what is your opinion on this? I don't know who I am. How can I know about these Yugas and things? Bhagavan said, what is the use of knowing the past and future without knowing the truth of the present? Let us find out what we are here and now. And then let us see whether there are any yugas. These yugas are all part of a world appearance. So we need not be concerned about these things. We can read some sort of metaphorical, uh, we, we can interpret these, these uh, things metaphorically if we want to. But why to go, why to think about these things at all? As Bhagavan said, we, who am I? We need to find out what we are here and now. What's because the use of knowing what we were in the past or how the past was when we don't know what we ourselves are now? So time is an illusion. Yes, yes. Bhagavan, so. Everything is an illusion. Kumar, can I ask a question? Yes, go ahead. So, uh, Robert, uh, thank you, sir. Um, so there are two things I wanted to ask. One is, uh, like Deepthi was mentioning, we are all going through the same thing. We think, uh, in my case, uh, 27 years, let's call it, I've been in this path, and I still feel uh, that uh, whether I have made progress or not. But obviously, I'm not the right judge to, to, um, to gauge my own progress. But... Uh, but um, any any uh, direction there. Second is why do we get anxiety? Second one, uh, though all the external circumstances materially are good, I tend to get anxiety, and uh, I wonder why. So just uh, trying to get input from you on both those. Thanks. Regarding anxiety, it is the very nature of ego. That is. As ego, we rise and we take ourselves to be this body. This body is an incredibly fragile thing. The next moment we could have a heart attack and be, be dead. We can, or we can go out in the street, we can go to the shop to buy something, we maybe find something is missing, we need to go and buy something to cook our dinner or something. And while crossing the road, we get hit by a bus or something, and the story is finished. Or even if the story isn't finished, maybe we'll be... Um, incapacitated for life or whatever. So when you cling to the body, as I am this body, you're clinging to something incredibly fragile, incredibly uncertain. In life, we're always looking for security. 
we like to have a nice bank balance, we like to have our own home, we like to, we, we're always looking for material security. We also look for security in beliefs. We want a religion that will reassure us that all's going to be okay, but in the next life we'll go to heaven. Or we want to believe in materialism, which is very, very secure, because um, when this life is over, your, all your troubles are over. Uh, so we, we're always looking for security in our, in our beliefs, in our relationships, in our, um, in, in our material circumstances, but none of these things are secure. None of these things are going to last. So it is natural for ego to a greater or lesser extent, to experience anxiety. That's one thing. And sorry, I've forgotten what my other question was, the first one you asked. Uh, gauging uh, progress, uh, like oh, oh. Uh, Deepthi, you know. <laughs> yes, right. Uh, if, if, so the key is both are related by questions, which is if I'm making, if I'm doing spiritual practices for 27 years, mm. why am I still getting anxiety? Though the external circumstances are completely good, actually, this is the best life for me to self-realize in my case, uh, because there are no problems for me, uh, uh, shockingly enough. But uh, after 27 years of practice, still, uh, why do I get into this? And, uh, and uh, uh, is there a gauge uh, to, to see if I actually made progress or not? Could I be presumptuous enough to respond to that, Kumar? Yes, certainly. Go ahead. I think the answer that I would give you as a, as a pastor of 30, 40 years is not from my learning from scripture, from, I, I hate to say it from my Christian tradition, but from what I've learned here. And that is that the I is that deeper I, the self, and that is, that is eternal, unchanging, and self-luminous. It, it can't be touched. It's not an it. It's a being. It is. As long as you and I remain in the ego as the person, as the personality, we will always, always, always be anxious. Thank you. Yeah, that is true. That is true. But even the only thing, the only refinement on what you say, Robert, rather than saying it is, it's more accurate to say I am. Because what we refer to as it is only I. Um, so, uh, yes. But regarding progress, we cannot measure our own progress. When people ask Bhagavan about signs of progress, Bhagavan said, perseverance is the only sign of progress. That is, we have to persevere in the practice. So long as we're persevering in the practice, we're moving in the right direction. How, how far we are from our goal, how close we are to our goal, we cannot know and we shouldn't know because we are we, we are not looking ahead to some future state of liberation. We are trying to find out who am I here and now. If liberation was something were, were to come in future, whatever comes will go. So such liberation we don't want. We want eternal liberation. So who am I here and now? So we shouldn't be concerned about our progress. All we should be concerned about is progressing. So long as we're trying to follow Bhagavan's path, we are progressing. How far we've progressed, we need not be concerned about this. These are all, this is all, the very idea of progress is something other than ourselves. Why should we allow our mind to dwell on things other than ourselves? Our aim should be 
to dwell on ourselves, to turn our attention within and see what we actually are. If we, when we see what we actually are, we will see that we've never progressed anywhere because we never left where we started. So this, the very idea of progress is only true for ego. Our aim is to investigate this ego. And the, 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 the anxiety about progress is again a thought of ego. It's in, so long as you're, we, we're dwelling on such thoughts, any thoughts, anything other than ourselves, we are nourishing and sustaining ego. To get rid of ego, we need to investigate ourselves. Ram's chains are chains of gold. I get this sense that that he is a my sense of him is he's a lived a very good life he's a good person but that you know whether it's chains of iron or chains of gold like you've mentioned before michael uh there's still chains <laughs> there's still chain a yes, chain yes. is a chain, chain, is a chain. And, yes. and you have to look at the chains that are around you ram and and no 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 well, no at, maybe that's don't wrong. look okay. at the chains look don't at the look one at the who thinks i am chained right right saduon <laughs> gave a very nice analogy of the triangular prison there was a that there, there was a man who was imprisoned in a triangular prison so he was searching the two walls to find a way out but he never turned around to see the third wall so those two walls that he was investigating are second and third persons and past and future. But he never turned around to see the, the, the wall behind him. Eventually, Bhagavan had to come and tap him on the shoulder and say, look, turn around and see, what, see what's, uh, what's behind you. When we turn around to see the first person, to attend to the present moment, there is no such thing. We are eternally liberated. So don't attend to the chains, attend to the one who, who believes I am chained. No, no. Yes, Michael, because Robert, Ram, no question um, is uh, when, you, when we do this, who am I thing? Um, I mean, I do it. Um, so when we do who am I, so I, I basically say who am I and then uh, um, and then stop to see if there is anything come from, coming from inside. I'm getting now into the sheer mechanics of how the who am I should work. Uh, so when I say who am I uh, and then I wait to see what's happening inside, uh, is, is that the way to, to kind of delve into it? Um, how do you do, do it exactly? Asking who am I is a mental activity. That is not what Bhagavan is talking about. Our aim, Bhagavan didn't say, ask who am I? Bhagavan said, investigate who am I? If, oh, if, if, okay. if, if someone gives you a book and says, investigate what's, what's written in that book, do you sit there holding the book, what is written in this book, what is written in this book? Or do you just ask once, what is written in this book? and wait, expect something to come out of a book. Nothing is going to come out of a book. If you want to investigate what's in the book, you need to open the book and read what's written there. Likewise, it's not a matter of asking who am I. It's a matter of investigating. Investigating means we need to look within ourselves to see what we actually are. Can I, can I respond to that, Michael? 
can, can I just finish? Yes, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, asking the question, who am I, may be an aid if it helps us to turn our attention back to ourselves. When we notice our attention has gone outwards, oh, who am I who's worrying about this? Who's, who am I who's anxious? Who am I who's, who's concerned about my progress? We turn our attention, we, we can ask ourselves, as an aid to turn our attention back to ourselves. But asking ourselves is not the investigation. Turning our attention back within is the investigation. And you said about the mechanics. This is all the mechanics it is. The only thing to be done is to turn our attention, but is now facing out towards other things, back towards ourselves. In other words, um, turning our attention away from what appears to the one to whom it all appears. Um, when and you are the real you is the one listening to all of this and there's a shadow as it were in front of you the ego when you ask the question with the mind the ego who am i or better still to whom do these thoughts arise first the obvious answer is to the ego but deeper behind even than that is the you that you know you are. You're always being, you always will be. You are that. And there's an, I hate to say, use this word, but there's an ontological, a physical, there's, a, there's a response. It's the response of truth and says, this is me. And that's what you're trying to subside into. And then even that experience disappears. I know that sounds a whole lot. It helps me to say to this, Ron, to whom are these thoughts arising? To whom? To whom? And when I first thought about that, I thought, well, the bloody ego is the thing that's listening, that mind. But then there's this whisper behind it. And as I do it more and more and more, that whisper is becoming what it really is, me. Does that help at all? Uh, yeah, I, I would just say on that, that is all this appears only to ego. But what we are interested in is knowing the reality of ego. That is the reality, the underlying reality, for the underlying reality, for what we actually are, there is no appearance. So the, the, this ego rises between what we actually are and this external appearance. The ego, which is now facing outwards, simply needs to turn its attention back within. That, that, question put by Bhagavan to whom he Bhagavan wasn't asking us to repeat the question but he's pointing us in the direction in which our attention should turn that is our attention should turn away from whatever appears back towards ourself the one to whom it appears that one to whom it appears is ego but to the extent to which we attend to ego ego thereby subsides and if we attend to it keenly enough it subsides and merges back into its source. That underlying source is what we actually are, and that is ever immutable, ever untouched by any of these things. Right. Very good. Um, the, the, the watching of the breath, can it, um, can it help? Why, what do you want to know about the breath? Are well, you watching, the breath? The, 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 uh, the point there, Michael, is uh, it will slow down the thought process, right? Watching it, the breath? It will slow down the thoughts, but slowing down the thoughts is not our aim. 
in yoga, the aim is chitta vritti nirodaha. That is the aim of yoga. So if your aim is to reduce the thoughts, yes, watching the breath can calm down the mind, can reduce the thoughts. But what is the use of that? Our aim is not to stop thoughts. Our aim is to know who am I. If we turn our attention within, the thoughts will automatically stop. If we just try and stop the thoughts, the attention will not automatically turn within. Every day when we fall asleep, all the thoughts stop. But we, we don't thereby know ourselves. So the Bhagavan's aim is, the aim of what Bhagavan has taught us is not to stop thoughts. In Nana, Bhagavan says, However many thoughts rise, so what? Let any number of thoughts rise. To whom do they rise? That is what we want to find out. So we need to, we let thoughts appear or disappear. They're no concern of ours at all. If we attend to ourselves, the thoughts obviously cannot rise because they appear only in our awareness. If we're not, if we're not attending to them, they cannot exist. So, Bhagavan's teaching, Bhagavan's path will bring about the, um, the subsidence of thoughts. But that is not the aim of Bhagavan's path. That's just a byproduct. The aim of Bhagavan's path is to know who am I. So merely watching the breath, yes, it will calm down the mind. It may bring about a nice, pleasant state. But we're in a nice, pleasant state every night when we fall asleep. But we wake up again and we have to face all the difficulties of life. So we shouldn't take uh, putting an end to thoughts to be our aim. To whom do the thoughts appear? That is what Bhagavan asks us to investigate. Attending to the breath, the breath is is a thought. Bhagavan said the whole universe is nothing but thought. The body is a thought. The breath is a thought. Everything is thought. So how can we, why, why should we attend to anything other than ourselves? If we want to know who am I, we need to attend to ourselves. If we want to know other things, we can attend to other things. Michael, um, this is Stephen. So. I have a I have a question. Yes. I so get the who am I question. Yes. What I learned from the beginning and starting, you know, to attend the sessions mm. is ask myself the question, what am I attached to? And that has yielded me where ego has got me. If it's an object or an outcome, then for me to identify what I am attached to in that outcome or way of being has really shown me ego in action. So it's not only who am I for me, it's also what am I attached to? And if you could expand on that one, would be helpful for me. Yes. It, attachment is the very nature of ego. Ego, as Bhagavan says in verse 25 of Uludunapadu, ego is a formless phantom or formless evil spirit. It's got no form of its own. But grasping form, it comes into existence. The word he says for grasping, it's a Tamil word, patru. 
uh, patri, he says. Patri is a, an adverbial participle of a verb, patru. Patru means to grasp or to attach ourselves. So uh, uh, the Tamil word for attachment is patru. It's also a noun. So he's talking all about attachment here. So instead of saying grasping, we can say attaching ourselves to. Right. So attaching ourselves to form, we come into existence. Attaching ourselves to form, we stand. Attaching ourselves to form and attaching ourselves and feeding on form, we um, we uh, flourish abundantly. Leaving form, we attach our living one form, we attach ourselves to another form. So the very nature of ego is to ego is a formless phantom. So all forms are things other than itself. So the nature of ego is to attach itself to things other than itself. How then to get rid of ego? Since the very nature of ego is to attach itself. Instead of trying to attach ourselves to anything other than ourselves, we should try and attach ourselves to our own being, to ourselves. If we attach ourselves to our own being, ego will thereby subside. That's what he says in the next sentence. If sought, it takes flight. What he means by if sought, if ego turns its attention back within to seek its own reality, in other words, if it tries to attach itself to its own being, to nothing other than its own being, to I am, it will thereby take, well, he says it will take flight. That means it will subside and disappear. So rather than asking about what am I attached to, what should I be attached to, we shouldn't be attached to anything other than ourselves. We shouldn't be attached to anything other than our own being, I am. Um, yes, Ram, uh, thank uh, you. You're saying something. When are we getting Michael to US? It's not a discussion for now, but we'll connect <laughs> offline. We, we need to get, I need to see him, I need to touch him, feet and all. <laughs> where, where am I now? I'm there on your computer screen. No, I, I, How can I know, get any closer? <laughs> you know, Ram, Ramana also said the same thing and disappeared. He said, where, where am I going? I'm still here. You know what? Yeah. I'm not there huh? yet. I'm trying some basic thing here. I'm trying to get Michael to go to Thiruvannamalai for a while now. <laughs> we'll meet. We'll meet. At, first, the, first uh, let me accomplish that, and then we'll get him to US, right, Michael? Hey, hey, Kumar, right. When, when Michael hey, goes to hey. uh, Thiruvannamalai, let me know because I yeah, that may be a better place for you to go, right? Yes, <laughs> correct. Yes, and Ram again. But what if, if you if you want to, to touch my feet, there's a price to pay. Uh, any you price. Have to let me touch your feet. ทั้งหมดอันบอดนามกะลัมบะดะมัมบะดะคันบะนะยิดะบะรอลาระนาชะลาบะรวันซิงอารณาชะลาเมยอ่าบีบะบะเอ่อเดอะดิโวทีออ